production and audio editing brought to you by Richard Borger with Meraki Recordings. Although they are the oldest ongoing living culture in the world, Indigenous Australians have almost become foreigners in their own lands. Missions where natives were forced to be housed and Christianized, the stolen generation where approximately one in three children were forcibly removed from their families, late 20th century laws restricting land ownership, maternity leave, pensions, inheritance, and more, all contributed to an Aboriginal unemployment rate that is three times that of the average non-Indigenous person. To help combat this statistic, Mission Australia created Charcoal Lane as an opportunity to train Aboriginal youths in the service industry. They create a safe, healthy environment where their trainees can learn about their culture, honor their traditions, and learn valuable skills that they can take into the workforce. Charcoal Lane also incorporates native Australian produce and animals into their food and press to educate people on the benefits of cultivating these products for food sustainability in Australia. Today, we discuss recent history, current events, personal stories, and exotic cuisines to understand more about the native culture and cuisine of Australia. Stay with us as we learn how the past and the future of Melbourne is shaped by the Aboriginals. Welcome to Culture and Cuisine, the podcast, season two, where we are creating conversations in the Melbourne community to show that everybody is from somewhere. Even the locals of today are shaped by the foreigners of the past. And with that, we can begin to understand and appreciate the diversity around us. I'm your host, Casey Hirschman. Sharing the table today is Troy Krillin. Uh, Troy Krillin, Program Manager for Social Enterprise Programs for Mission Australia. Greg Hampton. And Greg Hampton, Head Chef of Charcoal Lane. And my In the Field co-host, Lila Fournier. I'm Lila Fournier, the co-host. Today, we have the opportunity to sit with Troy and Greg on the 11th anniversary of the National Apology in Victoria. Troy begins by sharing with us what this day means for Aboriginals. Um, there was a report brought out called the Bringing Them Home Report, which was a report, report that went into the stolen generation. Um, so Aboriginal families that were taken from their families um, and, you know, the forced removal. Um, so, um, yeah, so today is an anniversary where we take stock and recognise that... Um, it's 11 years since our government actually recognised past wrongs um, that were placed against Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So um, for a lot of community, it's a day of where their own experiences were first recognised, like, you know, where in the past it, those things have been denied by government. Um, so, you know, denial of self, like, so actually com coming to a point of reconciling um, their own experiences of being real, like kind of occurred 11 years ago today. So that's very impactful for a lot of community members today. So it's a day that we need to be very respectful of. Yeah. Um, for our students, it's also about learning and being educated mm -hmm. around how 
those events have affected them and their own experiences. Many of the acts and laws this day apologizes for have drastically shaped the Aboriginal community. One of the major impacts is that on labor force exclusions leading to high rates of unemployment. Troy shares with us how Charcoal Lane was established in efforts to address these issues. Sure, so in 2009, um, Mission Australia went into a partnership with the Victorian Aboriginal Health Service to um, look at uh, developing a program that supported young people from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander background into employment. Um, at that stage, labour force exclusion was quite high for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people. Um, it's about um, three times higher than non-Indigenous young people in terms of employment. So really trying to address that labour force gap and that labour force exclusion. So. Um, what a great way to do it through hospitality uh, and what a great way to do it through food. Um, so connecting to culture through food. Like, you know, the essence of what we exist for is that, you know, we really believe that you draw your strength from every part of yourself and understanding culture is a big part of that and your culture and who you are and being proud of your culture. Um, and, uh, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture is the oldest living culture in the world. And I think... Um, a lot of those stories can be told through food. Um, having Greg Hampton as our uh, executive chef is amazing because he's a wealth of knowledge. Uh, he loves it when I talk about him. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, a qualified horticulturalist and a qualified chef, so, uh, and very knowledgeable. A big part of Charcoal Lane's mission is educating their young employees about their history and their native foods. Troy and Greg give us insight into this. So many of our young people don't know their history. They don't know history prior to 200 odd years ago. Um, you know, so, uh, and it's a rich history. Do you want to talk a little bit about? Yeah, sure. So we're talking <clears throat> maybe 70,000 years, yeah? Mm. At some accounts, which is the oldest living culture in the world. So obviously we're a quite a large continent. We're the same as the US in size. So we have a lot of different uh, climates and terrains and whatever in this country. A lot of them are quite harsh. So to actually to go to those places and to try and understand that people have lived here for that long, they've survived, they've been incredibly healthy, incredibly fit, is mind-blowing to me as a person. Because uh, until we came along and started changing the diet, the traditional diet of people, and introduced things like processed sugar, flour, stuff like that, they were really healthy people. Now we've got uh, you know, high obesity levels, we've got high levels of diabetes and things like that. Um, it has been proven that if, if Aboriginal people go back to their original diet, you can reverse the trends of diabetes and things like that. And that's because when we start looking at the foods, they're packed full of nutrients, they're really good for you. Um, it's not so much just the nutrient levels of the food, it's about producing uh, flora in your stomach it's about producing uh, good bacteria, which enables you to absorb those nutrients a lot better as well. Um, and just to try and introduce people to Australian food, what Australian food is, native Australian food, um, we tend to do things a bit differently down here. We have things like platypuses and stuff like that. So we've got mammals that lay eggs and all this sort of thing. Um, when it comes to food, most of the things that you can think of as, as mainstream food, we have a version in this country, but it's different. So for example, uh, our native banana is a vegetable that grows as a vine 
and it tastes like a pea. Wow. <laughs> yeah, so anything that you can sort of think of, we have a version of it, like an onion, we have onions, we have carrots, different types of carrots, we have celery. For example, our celery is, is a plant that grows maybe two or three inches tall and it grows on the beach, on the islands between Australia and Tasmania. Mm-hmm. Well, where are so we have Tasmania at the bottom of the continent, we have Australia, and then there's islands in between. Mm-hmm. That celery grows sort of on the coastline, the beach, the first plant community in from the sand dunes on those islands. Mm-hmm. So we've got a plant that tastes like celery mm-hmm. and parsley and the ocean. Mm-hmm. That's just one example of what our food is like. The trend of understanding native produce and food sources stretches beyond Aboriginals. Troy shares how Charcoal Lane is taking a hand in educating people and making the push to understand the foods that can support Australia's population growth. But there's a real groundswell of people that really want to learn about food from this land. And and we're going to need to because we're talking about food security for the future of this country and kind of learning about um, food that grows all year around and some of it grows like noxious weeds Uh, but yet we still have this mindset of trying to grow uh, English spinach at certain times of the year and trying to protect that where Warrigal Greens is something that uh, is a noxious weed and will kind of kill off. My neighbours down the coast um, ripped up uh, a whole green bin full of uh, salt bush which would uh, I know, which would sell for, you know, a lot of money. And $40 that, a kilo. $40 a kilo, wow. you know. So we, we don't understand the food of this land yet, but this is food that uh, is rich in nutrients and rich in flavour. And, uh, uh, you know, and, and because of that, I think this is a space where young people come to and they see the beauty of culture and the beauty of their culture and the beauty of, um, you know, sharing that at a start point through food um, and then other things ebb and flow from there like connecting to elders and connecting to communities so that's kind of uh, what we exist for and we have about 30 young people come through this program per year. Greg shares more detail on how Charcoal Lane sources and prepares their food. So with the food side of things, what we do is we try and source as much as we can. So a lot of our food comes from all around the country. Mm-hmm. So we, do, we have foods from the deserts, mm-hmm. we have foods from the tropical rainforests, we have food from temperate rainforest, mm-hmm. coastal plant communities. All around the country we have little bits and pieces there. Um, and to be honest with you, it's only you know, 5% of what's out there because a lot of our foods aren't farmed commercially mm-hmm. yet because we don't understand how to do it properly yet. Mm. But that will come. Um, over the last 20, 25 years, it's, it's improved so tenfold. Is there a special food ingredients that you use that we don't know at all because we're not from here and that you can find in the rainforest or in the desert? Yeah, sure. I could take you downstairs and show you at least 20. Yeah, yeah I was looking at the menu at on least the way 20. and I was like... <laughs> yeah. All these yeah, so we concentrate on, on those sort of things that grow here naturally, the plants and, and the nuts and the fruits and herbs and things like that. But we also concentrate on local seafood because that's an indigenous food as well. And Any- how, sorry, how did you learn to cook them? How? Yes. Um, yeah, so my background is 30 years as a chef. Um, but I did my apprenticeship uh, in a fairly traditional sort of hotel situation where it was fairly regimented. This is, you know, the French style of cooking and this is how we do it. Mm-hmm. Our sources are this way, our meats are prepared this way, rah, rah, rah. That's how we learnt. 
And when I started traveling around Australia and seeing more of it, and to be honest, falling in love with it even more than I was initially, uh, I started thinking, you know, what is our food? And then I was lucky enough to meet a person that sort of tripped me, stopped me and, and said, this is what we have. This is what it tastes like. You know, start using it. Yeah. And that was a trigger point for me to want to actually start developing our food more. Yeah. Did you like, so the cooking techniques for it, are they different than traditional methods? When, when you look at traditional uh, cooking techniques for Aboriginal people, a lot of the foods were buried in the ground in ground ovens or cooked on the coals. So for me to try and replicate that in a restaurant, it's impossible. I can't dig a hole in the floor and put a whole kangaroo on the coals, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, I, you know, I, what I do is, is the modern cooking techniques and I use those foods from this country. Okay. That's the way it works. So do you try to, like, meld the traditional or, uh, produce and things with more modern, like, fusions, try to appeal to other cultures or try to keep it more traditionally what i have to do what i have to do basically is because a lot of the foods that i use a lot of people have never seen or heard of before so what i have to try and do is make dishes that are fairly comfortable to people but they get to try something new at the same time otherwise if it's all uh a little bit too obscure people get a bit uh scared or apprehensive about what they're eating because they don't understand what the food is so the trick is to try and make it comfortable to people but introduce something that's new to them as well uh, that's the thing and in that 10 years that we've uh been around i think our customers have become more adventurous haven't they oh 100 (laughs) percent yeah 100 percent yeah. yeah, so I think when I first started here, I'd put a steak, like a beef steak or something on the menu with a hint of some native pepper or something like that. And I'd have a piece of emu or something like that on the menu, the steak would sell. Mm-hmm. Whereas now, I, I can't even sell a steak. If I put it on the menu, I can't sell it. Yeah. My biggest seller would be, you know, emu or wild boar or something, you know, yeah. or wallaby. Yeah. Um, how does it taste, emu? How does it taste? Yes. Have you ever eaten deer, venison? Yes. It's very similar to deer. Okay. Dark, rich coloured meat, mm-hmm. uh, a little bit gamey, absolutely no fat. Mm-hmm. So it's very healthy, it's very good for you. Yeah. Which and is the same with kangaroo, which yeah. is the same with wallaby. All these uh, native meats, they have no fat in them, which is a challenge in itself to get it cooked properly. Yeah. To, to quote one of our customers, emu tastes emu-y. <laughs> That's a good one. Most people come here and they think, oh, I might try a piece of emu, and they think it's going to come out looking like a chicken breast, you know, like a white meat, but it's yeah. not. It's red, and it's, it's yeah. very similar to deer. Kind of oh, back okay. to your question before, yeah. you know, I guess how are we, what are we doing to kind of bring up um, yeah. native ingredients? You know, that's, Greg's kind of answered that, I guess, in terms of we're shining a light on it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, this restaurant has been around for 10 years now. Greg's been here for five, almost six years this year. Um, And in that time has really brought this place up. I mean, you know, customers that have tried the wild boar are, you know, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, you know, like, so, um, you know, they shine another light on this space, you know, and I think that's kind of where we've got to. Greg found out this morning that we've maintained a hat for five years now as a restaurant, so, you know, and I think that's an important thing when you're talking about a social enterprise. Uh, people talk about, um, yeah, well done, Bruce. Um, you know, people talk about a social enterprise and it's about, you know, helping disadvantaged youth. Like, that's not what this space is. This is a place of advantage and it's a place where our students can 
understand that culture is at the very top and everything else sits beneath that. Um, and I think that um, now students are empowered by being in this space and you know, to, to have someone of Greg's quality in terms of a chef in this environment that's bringing out the food that's able to maintain that hat. We're, we're bringing a whole audience of people here, not for our program, but for our food which means that we don't have to promote our program and, and we don't want to promote our program. Like, you know, our program is lifting people out of um, unemployment, you know, like, and uh, when you provide that opportunity, people take it, you know, and uh, that's, that's why I think we have a high success rate and beyond people going into mainstream employment. And also you're, uh, you're talking about your customers. You're located in Fitzroy. Fitzroy in Melbourne is um, pretty famous here. It's... Um, some people will call it a bit hipster. Mm -hmm. uh, there is a lot of original people, um, really arty. Um, is it maybe easier for you to be located here than in another suburb? Um, Look, that's what I thought when I first got here too. What a great place to be able to do it. Because um, the local community are quite receptive to it all and, and there is a bit of an alternative feel to it. So if we're doing foods that people think are alternative, then obviously it's going to work. But I think we could be anywhere now in Melbourne and it would work, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, this is a spiritual place too for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Like, there is a real spiritual connection you'll get from this area. Um, Why? Um, this is the oldest suburb of Melbourne. Um, first suburb, yeah. First suburb. Um, so a lot of families that came off the missions um, from Aboriginal community came to Fitzroy. Um, so there was about three to 500 Aboriginal families living here throughout the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, until um, the cost of living uh, became too high and then it became a bit of an urban spread. This building was home to the Victorian Aboriginal Health Service from 1973 to 1992. Um, it's the first, it's the longest living health service before the health service that we see in Nicholson Street today. And people worked here for up to three months at a time for no pay to keep the values of what this building uh, stand for alive, and that's for holistic health of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Like it's, this is the beginning of Aboriginal rights in Victoria. This building is where it begins. Mm -hmm. So that's a spiritual connection, and that's mm -hmm. a connection that our young people understand when they come into this space. And uh, you know, that's the beauty of this area. And you know, I could stand outside the front of this space and watch community members coming to and from like just connecting to the area like not even coming into the building but just connecting to the area and leaving you know so things like um we now have a stolen generations marker across the road that recognizes the uh, atrocities of the past and uh and and is a place for people to heal um we have a mural outside the side of our building that talks about the rich history of this space like the pre-colonization um, you know, then, uh, and and obviously the uh, the health services place in terms of bringing this building up. And today, what this building means for young people who are climbing the tree of knowledge, you know, onto the wings of eagles, onto the wings of Bunjil, the Creator. And uh, you know, that's that's a beautiful thing. You know, I think it's uh, it all connects very nicely, like in terms of what the area means and what the space means. With such a tumultuous past. We ask how people's attitudes and interests have evolved over time and what might be at the source of that. Uh, I think there's a real groundswell now with the greater community um, 
going back to your point before about how people were never taught in school our real history and like people are now demanding that knowledge um you know our this space is the is, is a keeper of knowledge and a sharer of knowledge and i think that um the more that we kind of are able to share you know like the culture's not going anywhere the food's mm-hmm. not going anywhere you know like there's there's, yeah. there's a real resistance <laughs> well, we, have, we also have this issue in melbourne too we're growing too quickly we can't keep up. Our roads are too busy. Yeah. Our hospitals don't keep up. Everything's everything's falling behind, and that's going to happen eventually with food. So for us to understand what grows here naturally and try and, and, and make use of those sort of foods makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, otherwise we're never going to be able to sustain such a big population. Yeah. We have issues with water. We have issues with a whole range of things. Most of our water in this country is stored underground. And to put that into perspective, there's a part of the country called the Great Artesian Basin, which is basically half the East Coast. All the water there is underground. So when it rains, like full-on rains, we get inland seas and all the rest of it, but that water eventually goes underground. So for us to tap into that water to grow crops that aren't meant to be here, like it's very difficult to farm things. And, and what's happened since settlements, we've been trying to, to change Australia into Europe, and it's not. Mm. We have different soils, the rainfall's a problem, you know, it's just not practical for us to do that and we're starting to realise that. People are becoming more aware yeah. of it with yeah. with climate change and you know climate with, with food security. Before. And yeah. it's kind of like we need to address these issues. And and we're lucky in Victoria at the moment we have a progressive government mm. that actually is looking at investing in agriculture and investing in um, our past like you know so rather than that that denial of past like there's actually some steps towards wanting to do something so um, yeah there's 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 positivity there we continue discussing the impact of climate change and the strain non-native foods puts on the land of Australia Greg shares an example of the fight between native and non-native foods in the farmlands a guy who uh, was a farmer, who was a sheep farmer, northern New South Wales, who was struggling with drought and his sheep were dying because there's nothing for them to eat and all the rest of it, right? But he noticed there were some trees on his property that were flourishing and were healthy and obviously happy to be growing there because they were native. So he looked into these trees, found there was a fruit on there. They analysed the fruit. They realised that it was the first citrus in the world. It's called a finger lime. So we now know that that... that fruit is the first lime in the world and everything that we know as a normal lemon or a lime has eventuated from that because we're an island we're separate from the rest of the world and aboriginal people they don't practice sort of horticulture agriculture to that extent where they change fruits these fruits haven't changed for thousands of years they're beautiful they taste magnificent they come in all different colors they're amazing but it was stumbled upon by somebody who was trying to do something that the land didn't want him to do which was sheep farming and you, you talked about the, the drought. Um, this winter, the drought was uh, horrible for many farmers. Um, terrible. I think it was Still going the on. worst in the century. Um, did it affect you as a restaurant? Not so much as a restaurant. It has affected me on a, on a personal level, I guess, because I do see what's going on. It does trouble me. And then, on the other hand, we have floods like we had a couple of weeks ago in Townsville. We had now have an inland sea around that area and we've got millions of cattle that are dying. Mm-hmm. So we go from one extreme to the other. Yeah, like there were like no bananas in the store the other day. Yeah, well, that's why. The droughts, yeah. yeah, yeah. But we go from mm-hmm. drought to 
having inland seas where cows are drowning yeah it's it's a climate that we need to sort of understand a bit better i think yeah and i don't maybe for foreign uh foreign people that aren't familiar with australia do you know what percentage of the continent is desert i mean it's two-thirds basically yeah it's pretty significant i mean we're still at a point of um those we're still in the mindset of those people that that we're discovering this country you know like that we're going yeah, into arid uh, desert like without you know and they've got journals of this stuff where they had yeah. they're on their last drops of water and they were just about dead and they go over a dune and there's the whole community just drinking mm. water and sharing yeah. with them and that's how they survived but yet those stories we haven't learned the lessons from we're still we're still those people with our last drops of water you know we're still those people let's put it in perspective you said you were from texas yeah Mm -hmm. so you can fit texas i think three times into western australia and most of that is desert yeah semi-arid desert it's called i mean you find the southern part of the 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 area you know temperate rainforest and and temperate you know sclerophyll open forest stuff like that and there's pockets of tropical rainforest in the northern areas but most of it is semi-arid desert so there's vast areas of that country that have been um, used as uh, wheat farms for quite some time and what happens there is we basically turn the soil into salt over about 100 years and then you can't use it yeah, like the dust bowls back in the states. Yep. But, so but like we've also found in those areas, there's one example of something that grows in that area called a yulk, which is a native carrot, hmm. which will grow in basically dry sand, oh. no nutrients, very, very minimal rainfall, but you get yeah. this beautiful uh, vegetable. Yeah. It's a little bit like a sweet potato, but it tastes more like a carrot. It's called a yulk. So there are things that do grow there that we need to understand yeah. a bit more about so rather than trying to turn these vast areas into you yeah. know, wheat farms. Yeah, what kind of programs and things are available in Australia? Or do you know of any that are looking at this? And there, are, There is a peak body, uh, Australian botanical body, that does look into these sort of things. Yeah. Um, but, I, but the whole industry is quite fragmented as well. You know, it needs to be more of a, an effort to get people together and, and get things to you know move forward rather than one or two people trying to keep the knowledge to themselves or you know it has to go back to community and has to be a holistic you know approach rather than just a few people that are trying to you know I think that's what we're trying to push mm-hmm. that message through now you know like that traditional owner groups is a uh, westernized concept that was put upon Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people um, but the, the knowledge of growing should belong with those traditional owner groups and they should be shared back to their community so um, in terms of what grows locally so we've connected with Wurundjeri uh, local um, Wurundjeri tribe here um, and you know we're starting that process we're going to pilot something um, you know, on some land, like, but obviously it's going to need some input. You know, we work for a charitable organisation, so if you think about us, we've got zero dollars. You know, yeah. but we uh, have to raise funds to do things. So, um, you know, so we're really just calling upon government to take a step to think about the long-term security and, you know, step into these kind of pilot programs and support young people to work alongside elders to mm. to relearn. Yeah. You know how to how to 
cultivate this land properly. And uh, yeah, the yeah. only way into the future is to look into the past to see what what happened in the past, so we can move into the future. Yeah. So, so asking our government to stop looking down at Aboriginal people and start looking up. Yeah. to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. There's an amazing wealth of knowledge there still in some communities. Like it's it's mind-blowing to, to try and fathom how how these people can survive in, in a harsh climate and how they can understand it and be one with nature. And They can look at the stars in the middle of the night and they can tell you when a food's going to come available. Or they can see a plant flowering and they'll tell you it's the best time to go and catch a certain type of fish. Yeah. Like a, there's, a whole, there's a whole mind-blowing uh, philosophy and everything there that we just, we've lost touch with and we need to reconnect with all that. It's amazing like what they know. Um, in terms of seasons now, it's summer. It, it should be, it's pretty cold today. <laughs> uh, so what are your uh, favorite ingredients for this summer to use? Look, summertime is a great time for, for fruits and things like that in this country. Um, I just want to touch on something to, from you know, somebody from the outside looking in. They might think these guys are cooking kangaroo and stuff like that and they're cute furry animals and all the rest of it, which is, which is true. I can't deny that. But for us to, to look at foods like that, what we're, what we're trying to do is actually protect the country because anything that we introduce, like a goat or a sheep or a cow or something like that, has a hoof. And the, they do the most damage than anything because what happens is they compact all our soils with their hooves, mm. especially around waterways and things like that, and they, they decimate the land. Whereas anything like a kangaroo or an emu has a soft paw, a nice flat foot, and it doesn't damage our, uh, our lands. And they grow native, I mean, they eat native grasses, they eat native foods that are here already. They open seeds. Yeah, they can survive without us, you know, having to grow crops that aren't meant to be here to try and feed them and things like that. <laughs> We're talking about a whole philosophy of, of different foods here. We're not just talking about, say, something that's in season right now. Okay. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And the other thing, too, that is confusing is we have foods here, okay, that might not come in season until once every 10 years. We, we might not get rain in a certain place in this country for 10 years, mm -hmm. so we haven't seen that vegetable for 10 years. We have nuts in this country that only produce nuts after the trees that they grow on are 100 years old, and then you only get the nuts once every five to seven years. So there's a, there's a, whole, there's a whole lot of knowledge there we need to understand before we can start thinking seasonal foods. Because it's different to, to say, four seasons in, in a year and, and the traditional foods from Europe or anywhere else in the world. Mm -hmm. So how does it work for you in terms of menu? Do you change the menu? Before? I change it as much as I possibly can. But we also have to, to um, make use of things when they are in season. They are cropping heavily. Mm -hmm. A lot of things like the bunya nut, for example, we, we freeze them. Mm -hmm. So we can use them all year round if we need to. Mm -hmm. That's the only way for us to, to, to actually maintain those sort of foods yeah. over an extended period. Wow. Yeah, yes. and traditionally, um, <laughs> when we talk seasons, they, um, Bunurong is six seasons, um, Wurundjeri is seven seasons, you wow. know, so... So we're entering a season called late summer at the moment. Mm -hmm. And that's, um, there's certain things in the landscape that indicate what late summer is. One of them is a local fruit called a kangaroo apple. What happens with a kangaroo apple is it becomes, uh, it's similar to a tomato, looks a little bit like a small tamarillo. Uh, when they're green, they're quite poisonous. 
what happens is they ripen up and they go yellow and orange and then red and then they split and they fall off the plant. So when they're red, that's when you can eat them. Mm. That's one of the indicator plants in the landscape for late summer, for example. Wow, that's like yeah. mind-blowing. Yeah. <laughs> no well, you go uh, to Indonesia and there's two seasons, wet and dry. Yeah. You know, well, you so go to Northern Australia, there's two seasons yeah. in our eyes, mm. but in the Aboriginal eyes, I think there's eight in certain areas yeah. up there. The inconsistent food production poses an issue with buyers as many people want access to all foods year-round. Greg discusses how some farmers are working to address this issue. We have a grower, a finger lime grower at the moment that has a lot of uh, trees in his orchard called everbearing, which means that they'll produce fruit all year round. Mm -hmm. That's one of the things that's sort of, that's starting to happen to make sure that we have more sustainable year round crops. Can I, can I tell you a story about, uh, just talking about indigenous cultures. Um, so we have the coffee that you're drinking today mm -hmm. comes from a uh, Aboriginal controlled uh, business. Um, uh, called Janabi and uh, the owner of that business yeah yeah sorry what does it mean when you say uh, controlled Aboriginal controlled it means yes. it's owned and operated by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people okay. um, so that's Richard Young um, yeah we've just started using it so we'll have to try it that's the name of the restaurant in the Fed Square uh, Janabi Janabi it means to celebrate or something yeah, yeah. so so he um, that's Janabi yeah, but um, sorry. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> but um, so he is working with indigenous tribes in Peru mm -hmm. um, to actually cultivate under traditional methods of cultivating the bean. Mm. Uh, he's working with groups in PNG um, around the same process, and the chief of the tribe in PNG has blessed his beans as they come to uh, as they come to us. So, um, so that's. A process where, you know, I guess indigenous tribes across the world experience the same type of experiences. You know, you talked yeah. about Native Americans and, yeah. uh, you know, the eradication of culture is something that isn't new. Like if I was to explain the process of uh, the white assimilation policy of Australia or the uh, children being taken away, like it, there'd be a lot of head nodding going on from many indigenous tribes across the world um, so the eradication of culture exists but um, or attempts of that exist in the past um, but uh, yeah but I guess it's a really good example of where indigenous cultures are working together to, to do things in a sustainable manner um, like environmentally sustainable manner but also uh, a community perspective too like, so you know that you know, from the bean to the cup, the whole process is, uh, you know, I guess working with indigenous policies and uh, um, yeah, and 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 mindset, which is quite beautiful. I yeah. think you know, so uh, you know, we'll promote that in our um, menu the same way that we'll promote Yaru water, which is the water we use, uh, uh, our mineral water, which is. Um, uh, Taken from a space in northern New South Wales. Yeah, Mount Warning. Yeah, where sitting away from the Gold Coast, there beautiful uh, rainforest. Yeah, and and now they're starting to give a lot of um, like their profits back to um, water supplies across the country in remote Aboriginal communities where water supplies and um, 
water isn't at um, it isn't of good quality, so they're actually helping to put some um, dollars into making that a lot better. So, you know, there, there's impacts that can be made, and there's impacts that I guess people are making. So, there's a big push now for Aboriginal-controlled and Aboriginal-owned businesses to start working, and um, you know, to start developing. Uh, foods to start developing at different type of areas uh, like there's a business called clothing the gap uh, which is uh, uh, run by two young women that run a business called spark health which is a health related business but um, you know they're um, uh, they're great entrepreneurs you know so that so there's a lot of investment being made in that entrepreneurial ship um, in Victoria and uh, you know hopefully that kind of resonates and starts to happen nationally as well so yeah. there, there is a groundswell and there is a change like that's kind of occurring around yeah. this time. With the recent movement in the desire to acknowledge diversity we ask Troy what he thinks it is that leads to a true understanding and a thirst for knowledge of others. I had a CEO of a business come up to me and said you know I've done all this cultural awareness training but I've never been culturally immersed. And I'm like, can you explain what you mean? And he said, well, he was the CEO of a football team, like um, AFL we have here in Victoria, and there's a team called Carlton. Uh, he brought his leadership team and his Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander players here. He said, there's a guy in the corner that has said three words in the club in the five years that he's been with us, and here in an evening, you can't shut him up. Wow. talking about culture like so and it's because he was asked the right questions mm. to talk you know so um before he was seen as a timid western australian aboriginal young man uh, and when um, his teammates had kangaroo and emu and plates in front of them they're like have you tried it before he's like yeah i hunt kangaroo uh, and then he yeah. talked about hunting methods and they're like yeah. you what <laughs> what that's awesome wait can i go with you you know like so suddenly there's a sharing of culture you know like and that's something that we miss when we don't talk about it at school and something that we miss when we don't have those kind of experiences so you know i think now here there's stories that can be seen you know in terms of the mural you can you can take that journey you know before you come into the restaurant there's stories in our menu um when we're not asking our students to share their stories, um, but um, they are sharing their knowledge of food. Mm. Um, you know, I guess coming here today, do you feel like you've learnt something? Oh my gosh, some- yes. Yeah. So you know, <laughs> so there's those kind of opportunities exist. You yeah. know, like, and I think that's where that thirst for knowledge and that thirst for more. You know, there's lots of spaces where that's happening. Yeah. And to to get people to walk into a kitchen they've never walked into a kitchen before, and start looking at foods that is actually there's some relevance there mm. you know all of a sudden they start thinking well this is my food yeah. this is our food and you know what it's pretty cool too yeah and then you get all these you know the imagination comes into it and you get young people that have never worked before coming up with ideas and i think mm. i've been a chef for 30 years and i never thought of that wow. do you know what i mean that's yeah. the best part about it all yeah. to see that igniting people yeah that's great they're good stories and one of our students went camping and he's Greg, I woke up in the morning and I was surrounded by food. <laughs> Never thought about that before. And they got their phones out and they're sending me pictures from, you know, some remote area. Greg, yeah. look at this. Because yeah. <laughs> you know, this is stuff that they've used in the restaurant and now all of a sudden they're seeing it in the landscape and they think, oh, wow, this is great. Yeah. So all awesome. your students come from Victoria or do they come from all around? 
Um, mainly Victoria. Yeah. Uh, like housing is probably the biggest thing. Like in terms of we've had to relocate people. Yeah. It's very difficult, young people especially. Had a lot of young people from interstate w- want to express that interest, um, but the biggest struggle is, of course, maintaining somewhere to live for you here. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. housing is an issue in Victoria yeah. and Melbourne, yeah. and uh, um, you know the wait list for. Um, for public housing is two to three years, you know, so... Um, so yeah, because they have maybe to be wealthy to, to come from another state and cross the state and come here. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's very hard for a young person to come out of their environment and their family situation into a new city, a big city, and, and deal with all the challenges that are you know, involved with that sort of situation. And, and we acknowledge we're only one space, you know, we are yeah. a safe space, like, and we are a culturally safe space, and you probably get that sense mm-hmm. in terms of the young people when you came in, and yeah. they're very much at home, it's their place. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, for for us, this could just be five to ten hours of their day. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of other hours where you've got other interactions taking place. So we, we look to try to support uh, as many different avenues outside of here in terms of um, you know um, well-being like, and balance in life like, but, um, but people make their own choices in terms of what they want to do so um, you know I guess it's kind of like we can only control in this space so we mm-hmm. bringing someone down and making those kind of promises like we hold that stuff very seriously like we did have one young man who came here with his family from uh, the Northern Territory and um, they decided they wanted to go to Queensland and he was sick of moving and he was 16. Yeah, and he ended up staying at a, um, like, a Aboriginal, um, yeah, like, refuge for young men. Um, and, you know, that was, like, I'd just started here when he, he made that choice and I was like well, that's a massive commitment. They'll leave your whole family behind. So we made the commitment. I was picking him up every morning from Bert Williams and driving him in, and he just listened to Adele over and over, which is just so terrible. It was horrible. It was worth it. He, he got really good at making me coffee. <laughs> uh, but, you know, like um, he went on to become a qualified chef, and oh. now he's doing really well for himself. And, um, you know, he referred another young person two, three years later into our program and this young person walked in like already knowing who I was, who everyone was here and you know like he's like it automatically feels like home and then that young person went on to achieve great things in their life and invited other young people in and that's what this space is now, it's a big family and it's a big kind of um, yeah like all of our referrals come from ex-students and uh, from community like so you know we've got a wait list of about you know 10 12 young people wanting to join our program and um you know about 18 in here at the moment so it's busy yeah i mean i could i could tell when i walked in it was very like friendly like family feeling i don't know if you got to interact with anyone when you walked in but and that's really and says something about the space and what y'all have created because you know hospitality is people rapidly change over oftentimes or it's just like stressful to work and that's that's really awesome yeah all the stress gets carried by these guys that's right long flowing locks when you can what are your challenges for the future my challenges are for the future 
to maintain the quality of the restaurant, get as many young people through here as possible and to help everybody understand the culture and the rich culture that it is and how good the food is in this country. We wrap up the interview by discussing Greg and Troy's favourite native Australian produce. Look, I think my favourite flavour is probably the native pepper. Okay. So we're talking about a shrub that has, uh, you know, it's quite woody. Mm-hmm. It's got beautiful uh, berries that it produces with this beautiful purple fruit in it. Uh, the leaves are of use as well. The leaves would make a spice out of it. It's just so versatile and it tastes beautiful. And once you understand how to use it, it's just amazing. And it, it works with anything from desserts to, to meats to whatever you want, yeah. So those building blocks, that's one of the, the main building blocks that we use, and that's probably my favourite. No, I have a nice question. <laughs> Sorry. Troy, what his favourite was? Do you oh, I would say uh, my, probably my favourite experience with food was something like a munchy berry, um, wow. so which has uh, how much? What? So I think we're looking at 20 times the antioxidants out of a blueberry. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, a blueberry. So I explained that to a customer who then went on to lick the juices off the plate that he was eating. <laughs> <laughs> he wanted to be really healthy, but uh, probably my favourite experience with food here. Yeah, That's cool. cool. Yeah. But they're just coming into season now, so you'll have some more experiences with those. <laughs> yeah, we didn't chat about it. Uh, what about desserts? Like, does it exist? Um, I don't know. What desserts. can you say about it? Yeah. Desserts, so there's a whole range of different flavours that we use in our desserts. Um, and it's something that you need to experience. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, being a French person, we do a, quite a few different French desserts. Oh, yeah. Okay. But we add our flavours into it. So one good example of that would be a, a spice we call wattle seed. Okay. So a wattle seed is uh, it's a ground seed from an acacia plant. Uh, the flavours are similar to hazelnut, coffee and chocolate. So the seeds from this plant you put into your coffee machine and you, and you, and you extract it, you can have a coffee. There's that much flavour in them. But there's no caffeine, so it's an alternative to coffee as well. That's an example of what we do with desserts, mm-hmm. one of the flavours that we yeah. But did they have desserts before? Sorry? Did they have desserts before, like centuries ago? No. No. <laughs> That's why I was curious. <laughs> one of our students is uh, doing a lot of work with um, ice creams at the moment. Like, yep. So using native flavours with ice creams. Uh, and yeah. uh, he's very We like still, you, you need to understand, because it's a new thing for modern Australia, not Aboriginal Australia, but modern Australia, what we're doing is we're using these foods in, in kitchens modern day kitchens and there's things that are popping up all the time that we haven't seen before we haven't tasted before and nobody's really used before so it's a it's a matter of us experimenting with things and see how they work that's sort of where we're at with a lot of foods yeah cool that's probably difficult to understand but that's where we're at like you're learning yeah as we go go along with a lot of things ancient meets the modern yeah so. and you get a grasp of something and you learn how to use it and you think this is wonderful and then something else will come along mm-hmm. yeah, so it just keeps going and going and going because like i said we've only scratched the surface we're talking twenty thousand edible plants i think Jeez. and we work it's commercially available maybe 20. Yeah. So there's a lot of discovery. <laughs> yeah, yeah, heaps. A French person that I met uh, two years ago was a botanist who just spent two weeks in the wilderness in Tasmania. He came here and had lunch and we got talking and he basically had discovered uh, different lichens and, and things like that in the, in the forests that you can eat. Oh, wow. 
we didn't know about. <laughs> wow. That's because we've lost a lot of our, our uh, knowledge from ag Aboriginal people. We have to get that back. Yeah. We have to get that knowledge back. It's really, really important. And there are those keepers of knowledge and, you know, I think that's, uh, yeah, what, what the country needs to start tapping into. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much. I've learned so much. I had no idea. Um, and thanks for taking the time. This really, really cool um, venture that has been created and really see the, the impacts that y'all are having. It's really awesome. Yeah, thank you. Cool. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Production and audio editing brought to you by Richard Borger with Meraki Recordings. <laughs>